I've entitled my message, Grave Concerns. Kind of a play on word. What happened after Jesus died on the cross? Those intervening hours or days where we wonder what was going on. Where was Jesus? What was he doing until he was resurrected and united with his resurrected body? One of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time took place in 1922 with a man named Howard Carter. You probably have heard that name before. He located the 2,000-year-old, undisturbed tomb of the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun, or we refer to him as King Tut. On the brow of King Tut's burial mask was an engraving of a cobra whose task was to defend pharaoh's spirit throughout eternity. Superstitious people feared it was bad luck to disturb the dead, especially a pharaoh. This omen was ignored by the excavators until hours after the discovery when Carter's pet canary, he would take it into the tomb, Howard's pet canary was killed and eaten alive by a cobra. Instantly, the rumors began to emerge that the tomb was cursed. The media declared publicly that there would be dire consequences for disturbing King Tut's rest. Sure enough, less than two weeks later, one of the leading archaeologists, Lord Carnarvon, received a mosquito bite which became infected. He fell ill and he died at the sprightly age of 57. At that exact moment of his death, there was a blackout that covered all of Cairo coincidence, some would say. Some think not. Five months later, Carnavon's brother died, and six of the 26 men that were present at the opening of the tomb were all dead within a few years. We might think that, well, some tombs are better left undiscovered. But there's another famous tomb that begs to be explored, and that's, of course, the tomb of Jesus Christ. And the results of discovering and thinking about it are not a curse, but a blessing. Let's explore Christ's tomb after the crucifixion, before the resurrection. I'm kind of framing my message in three questions that I've often thought about. Maybe you have as well. Number one, where was Christ's body? Number two, where was his spirit? And then number three, how long was he dead? How long was his body in the tomb? Okay, so let's talk about that here this morning. The scriptures are very clear. We read from John's passage, but as you know, all four of the gospels give the account of Christ's crucifixion, burial, and then resurrection and ascension. The scriptures are clear, preventing any confusion as to whether there was a corpse in the tomb on Sunday morning. There was not. We know that there was a rich man's tomb that was just carved, and it was empty. Then Jesus' body was put into it. It was occupied, and then it became vacant once more. So vacant, occupied, and then vacant or empty again. After Jesus died, his body was washed or cleansed. It was wrapped in linen strips. And it was covered in spices that were intended to cover the stench of the decomposing, decaying body that was going to be taking place. 
And that is significant because it shows that neither Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who owned the tomb, nor Nicodemus, who was converted through Jesus' conversation with him, neither of these two men, this leading rabbi nor this rich Jew, or even the disciples ever expected Jesus to rise from the dead. They put him in a tomb saying, in their mind, it's over, it's done. So they put Jesus' body in a grave. They wrapped it up. We think of swaddling clothes when Jesus was born, but they used very similar method when a Jew died. They wrapped it up. They smothered the face with a cloth. They called it the face cloth. They smothered his face with a cloth. They slathered the corpse with oily myrrh and aloe, the Bible tells us. And it's not like they tied a string to his finger and the string went outside the cave and it was tied to a bell in case Jesus resuscitated or came out of the coma and he could wiggle his finger and they would come and rescue him. That wasn't what they were doing. They were not expecting a resurrection, of course. None of them. They expected him to be there permanently. The custom of the Jews, which started later in Jewish history, was they would place the body in a tomb and allow a year for it to decay and decompose and basically the flesh to be eaten away and turn to dust. And then they would return after a year and they would take the bones and put them in an ossuary box. You probably have heard that too. It's a small box. So they would take the bones. They wouldn't necessarily break them, but they would take the bones and place them in a box. That way they could maximize the usage of the tomb. They would stack the boxes, the ossuary boxes, which is simply a bone box. And then they could utilize the needed space. There was no anticipation of the resurrection whatsoever. By swaddling him in a straight jacket of linen. That's the way to look at it. Linen. Well, most of us have handled linen, maybe had some clothes made out of linen. Pretty strong. Putting in a straight jacket of linen, caking, as we read here, caking him with a hundred pounds. Now, a hundred pounds was a lot of mixture for a Jew. They probably, an average man, average Jewish man, five, four, five, six, probably didn't weigh much more than 100 pounds. So they slathered him in 100 pounds of goo, a gooey liquid mix of this mixture that they use to cover the body and to cut the stench. And then they rolled a stone over the cave entrance and made it impossible for even a living person Jesus wasn't a lot, but even for a living person to escape the tomb. Now, that didn't matter. That didn't matter at all. Anyone powerful enough to escape the clutches of death wouldn't be bound by grave clothes or wouldn't be bound by a stone that was rolled in the face of the tomb. The straight jacket and the glue was not a problem. Where was Christ's body? We know that for the hours that he was in the tomb, he was laid to rest and his body was in the tomb. And the next day they were coming back after the Sabbath, the high holy Sabbath. The ladies were there. You read the other accounts. They were going to add to that mixture. They were going to ask the Romans to open the door, roll the stone away, and they were going to add to that mixture. Second question. 
which is really the heart of what we want to talk about here this morning. Where was Christ's spirit? We read John chapter 19. Look at verse 42. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So they lay his body in the tomb. What happens to his spirit? I want to quote to you from a section of the Apostles' Creed, which all Christians would adhere to, all Christians around the world would adhere to. A creed is simply a condensation or a condensing of some essential beliefs. We, would, we have in our church a doctrinal statement. So the Apostles' Creed is an, a, a doctrinal statement. And the Apostles' Creed, which all Christians confess to, says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That he descended into hell, and on the third day he arose again from the dead. Now, there's more than one passage that this creed comes from, but let's look at one of them. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 9? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 9 is the first one that gives some light on what we're talking about. It says in Ephesians 4, 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? So we know that Hades, which is simply the Greek word for our English word for hell, is referred to as being in the lower parts of the earth or the center of the earth. And the Bible tells us that Jesus descended into Hades, into the lower parts of the earth. Now, some have said that Jesus descended into hell to suffer for our sins and to do battle with Satan for our souls. And let me say, maybe you've heard that before, but that is biblically inaccurate. That is not correct. Jesus didn't do battle for our souls with Satan. Satan doesn't own our soul. We're alienated from God. Our sins alienate us from God. Satan already has us when we're lost and undone. And Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. He doesn't do battle with Satan for our souls, and he didn't go to hell to suffer. He had already suffered for us on the cross, the Bible tells us. When Jesus said on the cross, one of his seven statements, it is finished. And you know that's one Greek phrase, tetelestai. It means it is finished. That he's paid for mankind's redemption. He suffered for the sins of all of mankind to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is finished. There was no other suffering that needed to be done. God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. He suffered for our sins while he was on the cross. That's why God turned away. The darkness enveloped all of the world. And Jesus was suffering for mankind's sin. He died, as the Bible says, once for all, for our sins. And it says again in Colossians 2.14, and he canceled our debt by nailing it to the cross. We owed God a debt, a debt for our sins. He created us. He's holy and righteous. We sinned against him. Our debt is against God. So we owe God a debt. And the Bible says that when Jesus was nailed on the cross, 
that our debt was nailed on the cross with him. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I, but Christ who liveth in me. So our sin debt was nailed to the cross. The Bible is very clear about that. He suffered for us while he was on the cross. Not in hell, but on the cross. We don't owe a debt to Satan. We owe a debt to God for violating his laws. And that's why Christ lived a perfect life and then died in our stead. That is a substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement. He died in our place and he lived a perfect life in our place because we can. And both of them are factored into our salvation. And by the way, hell is not where Satan is anyway. We understand that, don't we? I mean, we often have this picture that Satan is, is ruling in hell, and <clears throat> we can get that, but we understand that Satan is not in hell now. Matter of fact, in Genesis, after Satan led a third of the angels, which became the demons, in rebellion against God, I will ascend to the mount of the Most High. I will be like God. He was looking to usurp some of God's power, and he was a created being. You can read about it in Ezekiel 14, Isaiah 28, that rebellion. In Genesis, after Satan has rebelled against God, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and Satan appears to them. He takes on the serpent, and he appears to them and deceives them, and at least he deceives Eve, and Adam sins willingly, we would say. So, He's not bound in hell there, and that's at the beginning of creation. We read in the book of Job that the sons of God and Satan came and presented themselves before God. And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. He serves me uh, nonstop, religiously. And Satan says, well, he only does that because you prospered him. He's the richest man on earth. And you put a hedge of protection around him and his family. God says, no, no. His devotion to me is sincere. You can take away all of those material things. He'll still worship me. And Satan says, let's see. And he does. He takes away everything that Job has. And then he comes back and he presents himself before God. And he says, okay, but if you would take away his hell, then he'll curse you. God says, have at it. And he takes away Job's health, as well as his children and all of his material possessions. And Job is still loyal to God in his love and his devotion. So Satan is before God there. Satan comes to Jesus while he was on earth and tempts him. So Satan is not bound in hell now. Someday, the Bible tells us in Revelation, he will be cast into the lake of fire and he'll be bound for eternity there. But not now. Now he is, he is the prince and power of the air. He rules in this world under God's dominion, but he has a great deal of influence in this world. There is no verse in the Bible to suggest that Christ's descent into the realm of the dead involved any suffering in the afterlife. His suffering was done on the cross, not in hell. He descended into hell, but not for the purpose of suffering. Our atonement is never linked to any suffering in hell. All of the suffering took place on the cross on Good Friday. 
Now, to better understand the chronology of what took place during those intervening hours after Christ's death, let's weave together some other scripture text. Luke 23 is another passage you might turn to, and that is the passage where the conversation takes place between the two thieves, the two criminals that are crucified on either side of Christ. One is repentant and one is not. Pretty emblematic, really, of mankind. One is casting aspersions at Christ and saying, if you're God, why don't you prove it to everybody? And the other one says, Lord, remember me. So let's read that uh, passage, Luke 23, verse 42 and 43. The repentant thief asked Jesus, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, certainly he didn't have a full orb view of eschatology. He didn't understand all that was involved in the kingdom because the Jews thought the kingdom was going to come when Jesus appeared. When the Messiah appeared, the Messiah would overthrow the Romans and and the kingdom would be established on earth. But Jesus had to come the first time to suffer and die and to pay for our sins. Then he's coming back in what we call the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ after the tribulation. After the age of the church, we go into the tribulation and then the thousand-year reign of Christ where Christ will rule and reign and he establishes his kingdom on the Davidic throne, okay? So he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Whatever he understood is he was asking Christ, and really this is a a prayer of, of repentance. He said to him, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus says to him, I see your heart. I I, I realize what you're asking for. You're asking for forgiveness. You're asking me to take you to heaven when I go. Because he truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he probably, maybe had heard him in passing somewhere as Jesus taught the multitude. But he hadn't been changed. He had been converted. But now Jesus sees he is converted. And he says, today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. From Jesus' reply, we know that that same day the criminal died, he woke up in paradise. He woke up in paradise. By the way, paradise is used only three times in the New Testament. And it's used interchangeably for heaven. Okay? This is one of those passages. Paul also used it that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. He says, I knew a man in Christ, such as one, Paul's as a rabbi and as a humble person at this point, because he had received great vistas of truth, great visions that God had imparted to him. And so he speaks in the third person. He says, I knew a man. He's talking about himself. He says, I knew a man in Christ, he was a believer, such as one was caught up into the third heaven. We've talked about this. The first heaven is where the birds fly in biblical understanding. The second heaven is where the stars are. The third heaven is beyond that. It is where God dwells. That's how Bible language uses the heaven. First heaven, second heaven, third heaven. And he says, I was caught up into the third heaven. I was taken to the very throne room of God, is what Paul is saying. I was caught up in the third heaven. And he goes on to say, and I knew such a man, how he was caught up into paradise. You notice that? He uses heaven, and then he uses the word paradise. 
It happens again in Revelation, as well as right here in the passage that we're looking at. Paradise and heaven are used interchangeably, even though paradise is only used three times in the New Testament. He says, and I've caught him in a paradise, and I heard words that were unspeakable, that really couldn't be repeated. Received a lot, Paul received a lot that he then used in writing the New Testament under the Holy Spirit's direction. But he saw some things that he never talked about in heaven. He saw, I saw unspeakable things and words that could not be repeated. But the point is, he says, I went to heaven or I went to paradise. By the way, paradise is simply the word that means a well-watered and walled garden. Really, it's describing the Garden of Eden. That was paradise. A well-watered, walled garden. So when we think of heaven, it's not inappropriate. It's very accurate to think of heaven that way, as a garden paradise. Walled, we read about the walls that are around heaven, and that we read about the river that flows from the throne of God, and we read about uh, the tree of life that sustains life throughout eternity, etc. Okay, so it simply means a well-watered and walled garden. Now we come to a passage I want you to look at, 1 Peter chapter 3. It sometimes makes us struggle a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, because we need to reconcile what this passage says from what we've already looked at in the Gospels and from Ephesians. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, adds to our knowledge of what took place during those intervening hours. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sin on the cross. He suffered once for sin. We don't have to, Jesus doesn't have to repeat his sacrifice over and over like the Catholic Church teaches, that every time they observe the Mass, that Christ is resuffering for our sin. No, no. The Bible teaches clearly, Hebrews, throughout the New Testament, that Christ suffered once. He was the perfect sacrifice for sin once he laid down his life. And only once. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, God for us. He's the righteous, we're the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. No one can come to God unless they go through Jesus Christ. All roads don't lead to heaven. Only one road leads to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. There's only one way to heaven, and that's by accepting Jesus Christ and his atonement on the cross. The Bible's clear. It goes on to say, let's start over. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, We get that. That's what happened on the cross. Being put to death on the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits. There's two words I want you to notice. Proclaim and spirits to the spirits in prison. Proclaim is the word for preach. So he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Noah, the Bible says, was a preacher of righteousness. 
He preached to the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world, the antediluvian world. Repent because God is going to destroy this world and create another one. There's going to be a deluge. There's going to be a flood. It's going to rain. It had never rained before. The water came out of the ground, the Bible tells us, like a mist. It was like fountains with a mist, and it watered the whole earth that way. God disrupted the great fountains of the deep and the great canopy over the earth, let loose of its water, and so our whole atmosphere has been changed as a result of the flood. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he was preaching to the pre-flood world, repent of your wickedness, because the Bible said that the wickedness of that day was great, and a particular kind of wickedness that I want you to see. Matter of fact, Take your Bible and turn over here to the book of Jude, last book before Revelation. Jude only has one chapter, so look at verse 6. It says, and he's talking about the condemnation, and he's illustrating the condemnation of the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world. Verse 6 says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they did not stay in their lane, we could use that word today. Angels are spirit beings, but some of them, the fallen angels or demons, did not stay in their lane. They did not stay in their proper domain, he says in verse 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, the abode that God had appointed them for as spirit beings, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of that grave. The same idea of prison that is used In Peter's reference there, they're in bonds, they're in prison, they're in chains. These particular angels that went way outside, they were demons, but they went way outside of what God intended for angels to be doing. And what is he referring to? Well, you know, Genesis chapter 6. So that's Jude 6. Let's look at Genesis 6. This is just before the flood. And God tells us more about these demonic angels beings and they're throwing off the restraints even as rebellious angels that God intended for them. Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. They lived a long time, seven, eight, even into the 900 years because it was the canopy protected us from the harmful rays of the sun. The genetic breakdown hadn't taken place like it has over the centuries or over the millennial period of time, the six, seven thousand years. Men lived a long time. They had a lot of children. They had big families, etc. The population of the earth was huge, in the billions, we would say. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, interesting Hebrew term. You've heard it probably before. It's the Hebrew term Nephilim. Nephilim. And it's always, always only used of angels. Nephilim. So when you see the term sons of God, it's not talking about people, not talking about human beings, it's talking about angels. Now, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. So here are the fallen angels, the demonic beings lusting after the children, the women in particular, mankind. They saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful 
and they took their wives for them of all whom they chose. And you say, wait a minute, how could they take wives their spirit being? They possessed humans. They possessed human bodies. We know that demons like to possess humans. Demon possession is a real problem, especially in countries that don't have the gospel. Matter of fact, they'll even possess animals. Remember when Jesus was preaching, and he was preaching over there in the the Decapolis region, and he cast out the demons from the man, and that they went into the hogs, and they ran over the cliff, and we like to say they committed hogicide. Uh, They drowned in the sea, the Bible says. They want to possess bodies. They prefer human bodies. But these fallen demons possess men's bodies so they could cohabit with the women so they could produce a superhuman race. There's always been that desire of Satan to produce a superhuman race. You know, we know it from Hitler and others that want to produce a superhuman race. But Satan's master plan was to corrupt the seed of mankind so Messiah couldn't be born. If you keep Messiah from from being born, he had to corrupt humankind because God had promised that the Messiah would come through the seed of the woman. Continue reading. The daughters of men, and they were beautiful, so they took them wise for themselves of all they chose. And the Lord says, when God sees this, he says, that's it. That's enough. It's over. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Mankind is flesh, and it shouldn't be dwelt by demons. He is indeed flesh. He'll shorten the lifespan of mankind to 120 years. They still have people that live that long. And there were giants in the earth. Here is this master race that Satan was masterminding. There were giants of the earth in those days. And afterwards, so we see them again. Remember, even after the flood, we see David killing giants. We see others, as the Israelites came to the land, they encountered giants, the Bible says, men of great stature. So there were giants before the flood, and he tells us there were giants even after the flood. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into, and that's talking about sexual relationship. When the sons of God, the Nephilim, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. This hybrid race, this corrupted race, those were the mighty men, men of old, men of renown. They were famous because of their wickedness and because of their size. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man. The whole race was being corrupted. He saw the wickedness of man that was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil constantly, continually. And the Lord was sorry. He was repentant that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created on the face of the earth, from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made him. And then in verse 8, this wonderful verse, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One family, God says, I'm going to start over with. They haven't become corrupted. They haven't become defiled with the Nephilim. And so God says, I'll start over with him and his family. And so he does. We know the earth was flooded. Fountains of deep broke up. The 
Pangea, the great surface of the earth, which was mostly land in those days and small seas that was ripped apart. We can see that when we shove the continents together, the fountains of the deep. Now we have much more water than we do land because that water came from the canopy over us in this atmosphere and from the fountains of the deep. We have to reconcile 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Christ once suffered for sins on the cross, the righteous for the undressed, that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And when he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, the spirits that he proclaimed were these spirits that God says, because you've left your first domain and you cohabited and occupied human being, you're in chains of darkness. And they will not be let out of the chains of darkness until we read about him in Revelation when the gates of hell are opened up and the demonic spirits flood the earth and torment mankind. So they're released. I want you to notice those two words. First of all, proclaimed in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse um, 18 through 20. He, He proclaimed. Now, when we think of Jesus proclaiming, it's the word preach. There are two words in the Greek language for preach, and you've probably heard them before. Uangelizo, which means to preach the gospel. That's not the word that's used here. Jesus didn't go to hell and preach the gospel to the demons there. First of all, because angels only had one opportunity to follow God, and some of them didn't. There's no redemption for angels. So he didn't go there and preach the gospel. He didn't uangalizo them. It's the second word to preach, which you probably are familiar with, caruso, which means to herald, which means to declare. So Jesus goes to hell. He goes to Hades, and he proclaims or he heralds, I've died on the cross. I paid for the sins of mankind. Satan had lost the battle. You're doomed to stay in hell, and I'm going to be resurrected, and I'm going to be, my spirit is going to be reunited with my glorified body. That's the message that he proclaimed. And by the way, it wasn't to men. This word for spirits is never used of men. It's used of angels. So he proclaimed to the spirits, the fallen angels, the demons in hell, that he had won the victory. He'd won the victory and they had lost because they left their proper domain as described in Genesis 6 and Jude chapter 6. So spirit is not the word for souls, okay, us, we have souls, and it's never used to describe humans, only angels or demons. So from these verses, from these verses, we can understand that when Jesus died, his body's in the tomb, his spirit descends into hell, not to suffer for sins, he did that on the cross, but to proclaim victory over Satan and the demonic spirits in prison that have rebelled against God. Now, let's just, let's just let our imagination roll a little bit here. When Jesus was on the cross and when he died, can you imagine the party that was going on in hell as the, as the demons were shouting yes and doing fist pumps in the air and Satan is there joining them. We won the victory. We defeated God. We put him on the cross. Jesus died. God has died. 
And then at some point, Jesus' spirit invades the domain of darkness. Has not seen light and the torment that they're in. And the light of Jesus shines on like the Mount of Transfiguration or like when he comes back in the book of Revelation to rule and to reign. That piercing light breaks through hell's thick darkness and, and every demon bows their head and closes their eyes because they can't look at him. And Jesus basically probably says, you're wrong. You're wrong in your thinking. You didn't defeat God. This was a part of God's plan. I gave myself. I died on the cross. I paid for the sins of mankind. I've defeated Satan, and you're still doomed. And then he turns on his heels, and he leaves, and he ascends to heaven, and he presents himself to the Father. That Caruso that he proclaimed there probably didn't take real long. And he probably didn't take questions from the audience <laughs> that was there. And then he ascends to heaven until he returns for his body, which becomes glorified, and we will have glorified bodies like Christ. So third and finally here, how long was Jesus' body in the tomb? We've talked about where was his body, where was his spirit, what was he doing. Third, because this is an area that people often get confused over. How long was Jesus' body in the tomb? Well, if you look again at John 42, so they laid Jesus because of this Jewish preparation day. So Jesus was crucified on Friday. Remember, the Sabbath is Saturday. Jews worship on Saturday. That was their day of rest primarily. And then Sunday was the first day of the week. The preparation day is Friday, preparation for the Sabbath. So they, there they laid Jesus because of the Jewish preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, crucified on Friday. Sunday, we know he's resurrected. That's, by the way, why we worship on Sunday. I've had people over the years say, Pastor, you ought to have a Saturday night service. Christians worship on Sunday because... That's the day Jesus was resurrected. And we've got 2,000 years of history of that. Okay? Jews worship on Saturday. Muslims worship on Friday. We worship because Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, I'm 20 verse 1, went to the tomb early while it was still dark. So pretty early in the morning. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and she told Simon Peter, Someone has taken his body. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They thought he had been stolen away by someone. Okay, so let's talk about that. Jesus consistently predicted that he would be dead three days. But if Jesus died at Friday at 3, because the Bible is very clear about that, he was on the cross from 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, and he said, it is finished, and he dies. So Jesus dies at 3 p.m. on Friday, and he rose Sunday at dawn. How was he in the tomb for three days, or what we tend to think of, 72 hours, 24-hour days? Well, he wasn't. So let's talk about that. Jesus was in the tomb for parts of three days, totaling about 36 hours. He was in the tomb for about 36 hours. Now, unless you think I'm a heretic or unless you misunderstand something, let's understand what the Bible is saying here. Let me remind you how we interpret the Bible. 
as Bible believers, as Christians, as, as biblicists, we interpret the Bible according to the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Hermeneutic simply means means of interpretation. Homiletics is preaching. Hermeneutics is interpreting. Okay? So we follow what we call the literal. The Bible is plain and simple. We can understand it. We interpret it literally. Grammatical, the grammatics of that day, it was written in Hebrew and Greek, so we have to understand those if we're going to understand it better. Literal, grammatical, historical view of interpreting scripture that's the hermeneutic that you use so what that means is we interpret it the way the people at that time understood it so you have to get back into their shoes you have to get back in their sandal get back into their culture if we're going to understand it properly why because they're the people that wrote it so we got to understand what they're writing we have to understand it the way they understood it their usage reflected the grammar and cultural context of that day. So why I'm saying that, so I can say this. Jews at the time of writing of the Bible used to say three days and three nights for anything shorter than four days and anything more than one day. They'd say three days and three nights. And any part of, of those days would be shorter than four days and, or more than one day. A day meant any part of a day. A day was any part of a day to a Jew. And you can see that played out, by the way, in other places of Scripture. Let me just reference one. Esther, the book of Esther. Remember, Esther wins the beauty contest. She's married to King Asuerus. Then Haman put a plot together to kill all the Jews. He doesn't even know that the queen, Queen Esther, is a Jew. So he's going to kill off all the Jews in the land. And when that is found out by Haman, he tells Queen Esther, and Queen Esther says this in chapter 4 and uh, verse 16. She says, fast and pray for three days, and then I'll go to the king and appeal to him. That was in the afternoon. They fast that day, they fast the next day, and the day after that is when she appeals to the king, almost identical to when Jesus was in the tomb. Part of the day... All of the next day and the next a part, a few hours in the third day. And they called it three days. She said, fast for me for three days. Really, they fasted one full day and two parts of a day. But to a Jew, any part of a day was a day. They weren't so exact in timekeeping. Remember, they even in Genesis, day and then night. God did this on the day and then there was night. He did this and it was followed by night. And they divided their night into those watches from 6 till 9 was the first watch. 9 to 12 was the second watch of the night because they had guards. They had watchmen that were looking out over the city, so they called them watches. 6 to 9, first watch. 9 to 12, second watch. 12 to 3 was the third watch. And 3 till 6 in the morning was the fourth watch. So their day was from 6 in the morning to 6 at night. Basically, they said from sunrise to sundown was day. So any part of that was considered a day, even if it was only a few hours, because that was the case with Christ. For about three hours on Friday, he was in the tomb, all day on Saturday, and really just a few hours on Sunday morning. So we understand it according to the way the Jews understood it, according to their method of timekeeping and their 
cultural understanding of what a day was. When Jesus predicted he would be in the grave the same time as Jonah, remember three days and three nights with Jonah in the belly of the whale, no one thought he meant 72 hours. They weren't like, okay, start the stopwatch. Any part of a day. He was in there three nights, any part of a day. No one kept time rigidly in those days like we do today because they couldn't. They couldn't. So Friday was the first day, Saturday was the second day, Sunday was the third day, even though it was only a few hours. Bear in mind that they considered sundown, not midnight, to be the end of the day. The day ended at sundown with those four watches of the night. So Jesus, let's summarize here and we'll wrap up. Jesus in his death was able to proclaim victory. That's exactly what he did when he went to Hades, when he went to the earth and he proclaimed to the demons. While his people mourned and his wrapped up body was in the tomb and they, they were believing it was the end, Jesus was at work. He was doing his work. He was proclaiming victory and he was showing his power and his glory to those who least expected it. Now, we've been through a couple of pretty rough years. We've had COVID. We've had the shutdown. We've had the masking mandates. And through that period of time, drugs have skyrocketed, fentanyl. Suicides are off the charts. We know that. We've had some rough years. And now we live in a country where many of our political leaders, our national political leaders, seem hell-bent on, I like to say, deconstructing and demolishing every major institution in America. Let me rehearse a few of them. Our educational system, our public educational system, seems to be completely off the rails. It's all about CRT and transsexual lifestyle. And when a governor like DeSantis says, we're not going to do that, at least for the little kids, they pick it and they go nuts over it. They call him a gay hater. Our educational system, law enforcement and an order. We know that certain people have been put in AG positions and law enforcement overseeing our police officers and making their job only harder where they release criminals immediately after they're arrested for heinous crimes. So law enforcement and law and order. Our monetary system being pumped up with dollars and causing inflation, and printing money like it's going out of style and sending it all over the world. Our monetary system, reckless spending and giveaways, the censoring of free speech, especially by conservatives. They're shut down, they're censored, they're, they lose their platform, they're deplatformed. The integrity of our elections, everybody knows that there's been a lot of uh, corruption in the election process and a lot of them would like to have uh, only mail-in ballots and only electronic balloting so the process can continue to be corrupted. Wokeness in the military where we have generals who have no clue and they're more concerned about wokeness, transgenderism than protecting our country. And the list could go on. So it may look to us as Christians 
is where I'm going. It may look to you like our world is out of control. And it can give you some heartburn. It may look like things are out of control, that maybe evil is winning the day, and that Jesus, maybe Jesus is dead, or maybe Jesus isn't in control. But he isn't dead, and he is in control. His timing is always impeccable, just like on the cross, just like in the tomb, just like in Hades, just like at his resurrection, and just like at his return. His timing is impeccable, and it still is today. And so we must live like that. We must live like God's in charge, he's in control. The world may look like it's out of control, but it's only out of control under God's domain and sovereignty. And I can rest in him. Evil hasn't won. I remind you that we are overcomers. We are victorious. We are heavenites, you know. We're bound for heaven. We're heavenites. Because our Savior is alive, death could not hold him, and we will triumph with him. Don't fret. Don't worry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're in control of every detail, not just the big schemes that involve world nations, but the details of our lives. And we are easily worried and fretful and panicky. But we realize that all things are unfolding according to your plan. And so help us to rest in you. Help us not to rest in the sense that we don't see the urgency of the gospel, but help us to rest and not fret because you're in charge. You're in control. And you'll soon return and deliver us from this evil present world, as the Bible says. So help us to be about your business, but help us to rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.